Hello, welcome to Pod Academy. After 70 years, we have no notion as to what this thing called autism is all about. My son experiences epileptic fits, he experiences episodes of self injury. If you try to stop him injuring himself, he will attack other people. I'm clamoring for effective treatments for those things which have a dramatic effect on the quality of his life. We're thinking about ethics and autism. Perhaps we should start from human well being, human flourishing, human experience and then think about what that means for living as an autistic person. I'm living with autism and the benefits that it gives me in terms of lifelong benefits that I've gained uh, I regard as, as a God-given talent and I've had an immensely valuable life as a result of being autistic. What aspects of autism are genuinely and inherently debilitating and what is simply about being different in this world? An estimated 1% of children worldwide are described as autistic. But what exactly does that mean? What is autism? Autism affects how someone communicates with and relates to other people. It can also affect how they make sense of the world. But it's what's called a spectrum condition, which means that different autistic people are affected in different ways, depending where they are on the spectrum. And it's a wide spectrum. Some autistic people, for example, have above-average intelligence and some have severe learning disabilities. So autism can be described, but almost nothing is known about why one in a hundred of us will have the diagnosis. Are the causes genetic, hormonal, social? Is it something to do with the wiring of the brain? Or is it a combination of all those things? No one knows. And that's why the EU AIMS project, that's the European Autism Intervention Study, has been set up. It's the largest ever academic industry collaboration aimed at understanding autism and finding new methods for developing drugs for the autistic spectrum disorder. It's led by King's College London, with partners in 13 other centres of academic excellence around Europe, and by pharmaceutical company Roche, in partnership with other huge global pharma companies. Although it's clear that new drugs are the longer-term aim of the project, the first phase is about understanding autistic spectrum disorder, sometimes called ASD for short. And there's much to understand. The EU AIMS project has brought together researchers from diverse backgrounds, genetics, neuroscience and cellular biology. And they're all beavering away, looking for an answer to the question, what is autism? So we've got Big Pharma and we've got academic researchers. But where are the people with autism and their families? They live day in, day out with autism. They must have crucial insights and experience to feed into the research programme. Given the fact that the scientists don't know what autism is, surely their knowledge and perspective is indispensable. Well, that gap has been recognised. This podcast records some of the key points made at an event entitled Treating Autism, the Promises, Perils and Politics of Pharmaceutical Intervention, which was held in London in late 2014, at which autistic people and their families put their views to the EU AIMS project. Good evening and welcome everybody. I'm Ilana Singh and I am co-chair of the EU AIMS Ethics Advisory Board and I'm so pleased to see everybody here tonight uh, for what is the first of what we hope will be a series of public dialogues 
around the EU AIMS project, which we're going to hold in different countries uh, that are associated with the project. So you may ask, why are we holding a public dialogue around the EU AIMS project? And many of you, of course, will be familiar with the debates about neurodiversity and the autism rights movement, um, about the role of pharmaceutical industry funding in autism treatments, and debates around prevention and cure in autism. So for all these reasons, we want to hold this public dialogue. And we really feel strongly that these issues and other issues should be discussed both internally in research programs and externally with the public so that we can all get a better handle on what stakes we have in these kinds of questions around these kinds of concerns in autism. And I know that the researchers in the EU AIMS project are deeply committed to this kind of dialogue as well. But you may say, but this dialogue is happening after the EU AIMS project has already begun. So what could we do at the beginning of these projects to actually have input from the public at the start? And it's true that the EU AIMS project has already begun, but this project is really a foundational project in Europe for the way, a way of doing research and around treatments in autism um, and a platform for thinking about the integration of research and ethics and public engagement. So we will take what we learn from these public dialogues and think forward to the next projects that spin off this project. And there will be more and more projects that come out of these kinds of consortia. So I hope that you see yourselves not just as commenting on this particular EU AIMS project, but thinking about the future of research in this area. Finally, I think for tonight's dialogue, um, because some of these issues can be difficult um, and very personal for people, it's probably worth remembering that whatever role you see people playing tonight and speaking from, it's unlikely to be the only role they have in relation to autism. So we may have parents of people with autism who are also researchers of autism, and we may have people who are living under the description of autism who are also researchers. All of us, I think, many of us certainly come to this dialogue tonight with autism having multiple claims on us. My name's Sandy Starr, and I'm chairing this evening's event, Treating Autism, the Promises, Perils and Politics of Pharmaceutical Intervention. As Eleanor said, many of us have several roles in relation to autism. Um, I'm someone who's interested in autism professionally. I work at the Progress Educational Trust, and that's a charity... Uh, that works in the fields of genetics, assisted conception and embryo and stem cell research. And some aspects of autism come within our remit. I'm interested in autism politically uh, because of a long-standing interest in the politics of disability, uh, identity and psychiatry. And I'm interested in autism personally because I was given a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome when I was a teenager. I'm also a member of the Ethics Advisory Board uh, of EU AIMS, which is, is short for European Autism Interventions, a multi-centre study for developing new medications. Tonight uh, we'll be discussing the research and issues raised by this research um, with the panel of speakers you see here and then with input from all of you. We're going to begin with a series of short presentations and the first person to speak, sitting on my far right, uh, will be one of the leaders of this research project, Declan Murphy. He's academic coordinator of the EU AIMS project, professor of psychiatry and brain maturation here at King's College London's Institute of Psychiatry, psychology and neuroscience, and he's a consultant psychiatrist at the National Autism Unit and at the Behavioural Genetics Clinic at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. 
Uh, Declan, can I invite you to step up to the lectern okay. and tell us uh, about EU aims and about the promises, perils and politics of pharmaceutical intervention in autism. EU aims is an initiative that's funded by the Innovative Medicines Initiative in the EU, where it's linking up academia together with colleagues in the pharmaceutical industry. And our aim is not to design new treatments for autism or to test new treatments for autism. It's to try and understand autism better so that we might be able to identify new treatment targets. Although there's a focus on biology, inverted commas, we'll also be carrying out work looking at the way that people who are diagnosed with autism think and their strengths and their difficulties so that we can also begin to think about what might be some of the cognitive differences and strengths and how can we work with those in addition to pharmaceutical uh, interventions. What we're trying to do is to say, to make better progress, we need to work together. It's no good having clinician scientists in one half of a room and basic neuroscientists in another part of a room and psychologists in another part of a room not talking to each other. We all need to talk together. And so progress in one area really can very rapidly impact upon the work that people are doing in other areas so that we learn from each other more in real time rather than sequentially so that we can make much more rapid progress. So that's the overall ethos of what we're doing. In terms of what that means, what are the, the promises, the perils and the politics, I mean, why are we doing it? Sally said, did I have any slides I wanted to show? And I said, no. Uh, normally my favourite slide is a blank slide which is my horrible standing joke, which is the this is the effective treatments for autism slide. We actually don't have any if we talk about core symptoms of autism as currently clinically diagnosed. Some people are, feel there's more an evidential base around psychological interventions. That's certainly true in some aspects. But certainly in pharmacological interventions, there's very, very, very limited evidence for the efficacy of any interventions for core symptoms. In fact, I mean, really none. So what we need to do is to see if we can help and design new treatments. But this is where the promises and the perils come in. What happens currently is that if you do have a diagnosis with an autistic spectrum disorder and you're diagnosed, you're highly likely to be treated with a pharmacological intervention that's likely to be ineffective. There's no evidence base currently for a lot of the clinical approaches. So I think the first promise is we can't do worse than we're currently doing. We just cannot do worse. So we can look to make things better. Some of the perils are, and the politics are, I'd put to you that it's highly unlikely, in fact I'd say impossible, that one treatment, inverted commas, is going to work for everybody. It's just not. I, why do I say that? I say that because, number one, people are people. Firstly, not all people would want a treatment or need a treatment. And then secondly, of those people who do want a treatment or need a treatment, there'll be very many different varieties of individuals there. So the key is, how do we work with that individual to understand what it is that's most going to help that individual improve? So how is it that we can introduce a personalised, tailored treatment for that individual rather than just give them something off the shelf that we'd give to 100 other people? And so in that help, in that way, hopefully improve better, but also reduce their exposure to either ineffective pharmacological compounds, which would have side effects, or ineffective psychological treatments, which would take a long time. In terms of the politics, there's all sorts of politics that are around, but you know, politics is what you make it. 
I would say that some of the key things that we're faced with and working with are things like how is it that we can include individuals with an autistic spectrum disorder or autistic spectrum condition who may not be able to express their own wishes? So how can we work with individuals who are typically excluded from most studies? So we've made a significant effort to try and include individuals in our studies who are, inverted commas, lower functioning. In other words, they'd have a reduction in their overall intellectual level. So normally they would be excluded. The other thing that we're trying to do is to include women, because women are typically excluded from studies of individuals uh, with autism. So we're making a very big over-recruitment exercise in terms of that. But here's the other politics too that we need to keep in mind. We can't just focus on what I would call core symptoms, because a lot of individuals with uh, autistic diagnoses also have a whole host of other things going on such as depression or anxiety or school needs, etc. And actually, probably in the short term, we can make most progress by helping out with those things for which we know we can have effective treatments in some individuals. So whilst we're talking today probably about treatments for core, inverted commas, autism, actually it's absolutely crucial that we don't forget that probably in the short term we can make the most progress by working with those individuals who have comorbid mental health problems or societal problems or educational problems to try and improve their outcomes. Thank you, Declan. Um, Richard, would you like to step up? Uh, Richard Ashcroft is a co-chair of the Ethics Advisory Board uh, of EU Ames. He's also a professor of bioethics at Queen Mary University of London. Um, he's co-director of the Centre for the Study of Incentives in Health. Uh, he's a deputy editor of the Journal of Medical Ethics. Um, and one of, one of the reasons why he's uh, personally interested in this area is that he has an autistic son. Thank you. Um, I've spoken about autism and ethics on a number of occasions, both formally and informally. And the difficulty I always face is, yeah, I'm a professor of bioethics, I'm a philosopher, I write about ethics professionally, I've served on a number of committees and, you know, do all the things that academics are supposed to do. But I'm also a parent, and my son is eight years old. He was diagnosed just after his third birthday, and he's doing well. The first time I spoke in public about these things was just after he had his diagnosis, and I had a somewhat public meltdown trying to talk about it. But the reason for the public meltdown wasn't so much his condition as my adjustment to it. And it wasn't so much my adjustment to it as a parent, although that was a big part of it, it was also... How did I come to terms with trying to think academically about something that had just become the most important thing in my life? And I still wrestle with that problem. And I still wrestle with that problem in contexts which I sometimes choose to find myself in, like this one, and working with EU Ames, and sometimes not. But what I've come to understand is that's partly because I was thinking about ethics the wrong way. It's not about deriving abstract principles and applying them in a deductive way to situations. I don't know that I ever really thought that, but I tried to live that way. I tried to practice my work that way. It is about trying to understand how people live their lives and how they find ways of living those lives well and how they find ways of flourishing in those lives and what are the things that impede them in doing so. And the reason I introduce all this is partly to undermine my status as an expert because in this context I don't think I am an expert. But partly also to say, well, if we're thinking about ethics and autism, perhaps we should start from human well-being, human flourishing, human experience, and then think about what that means for living as an autistic person or living with autistic people. And that will tell us something important about how we think about treating it and 
how we treat it. Notice the ambiguity in that last sentence. We treat it. How we means two different things, doesn't it? It means how we deal with it, how we respond to it, how we cope with it. It also means how we medicate it or how we give it surgery or so on. So there's the medical sense of treat and there's the common ordinary language sense of treat. And these two things come together very neatly in the EUM's context because, as you can hear from Declan's very uh, thoughtful introductory remarks, there is both a model of how we, they, think about what autism is, as well as a model of how they think, how we think it ought to be responded to and what things we might try. So, one of the questions is, what are we trying to do in treating autism? And another question is, who defines that and in whose interests is it working? Now, one of the problems in autism is it's so heterogeneous and so diverse and the old joke in the autism world is, when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. My son's very different from Sandy. He's better looking, for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> the ways in which autism is present in these very different people's lives and in the lives of several people in this room is very diverse, therefore. So what we're trying to do for each of those people, or with each of those people, or in response to each of those people, may be very different. That's one difficulty, is if we say we are looking for a treatment for autism, it's not so clear what that will be, because it's not so clear what this autism is that we're trying to treat. Now, there are lots of stories we can tell, very well-grounded, evidence-based, scientifically realist stories, but stories nonetheless, about the way the brain works or the way genes work or the way brains and genes co-create and environment and so on and so on and so on. And each of those will pick out some things as more salient than others in what we ought to do. But until that emerges as a more coherent set of stories, we're still going to be with Declan's blank page. What EUM certainly will do is advance our understanding of autisms and the way they come about and the way they develop and the way they play out in people's biological and psychological lives. Some of that will tell us some things are important about treatment, sometimes it won't. We don't know, that's how science works. If we knew the answer, we wouldn't need to do it. But we always need to keep in mind, I think, these questions that I started out with. Who's it for? Why? And who decides? Who's it for? Is it for the autistic people themselves? Or is it for someone else? Now, I work because I am a parent... I'm very conscious that a lot of the things I do with my son are on some level about my needs and my expectations, or, if I'm a bit less egocentric, our needs and our expectations. He's in a mainstream primary school. They work to a certain framework. There are expectations of how children will be raised and educational goals which are supposedly common to all children. And inclusion... And special needs inclusion is about trying to conform to that as closely as possible. And we work out an accommodation with that. But the starting template is human life as normal, as prescribed by Western middle-class society. Okay? So that's one set of things. Is, it, is, it, is this really about his needs or is it about someone else's? And that's a question we always have to keep in mind. We may well conclude that this is actually that whatever the treatment that Declan and colleagues come up with really is actually for the needs of the autistic people. But we have to keep in mind that it may not be. 
Some of you may start from that assumption. I don't think we should start from that assumption, but we should start with that question. The second is what? In my first public attempt to talk about these things, I made a very strong claim about the way in which biomedical science is made around the things that biomedical scientists are interested in, and there's a priority of biomedical science over everything else, for example, educational research, social work research, and so on. I've softened my view somewhat as time has gone on, but I still, you still just look at the relative, relative spend on research and relative spend on services. The third thing we have to keep in mind is the context in which all this takes place. I think it's perfectly possible that we'll have really useful pharmaceutical interventions which help with some, if not all, of the symptoms, the sort of side effects, if you like, of autistic life, while leaving untouched core autistic traits. And that may, in fact, be a good thing. If you take the neurodiversity idea seriously, you may not want to remove core autistic traits. You may want to make life with autism easier, though. That may be where we go. So you've got to think about who's it for, what's it for, and where is it taking place? Thanks, Richard. Um, speaking next will be Virginia Bovell, who is Vice President of Ambitious About Autism, uh, which is a national charity for autistic children and young people. Virginia is also a researcher at the University of Oxford's Ethox Centre, and her research focuses on the exact topic we are examining tonight, uh, the promises, uh, perils and politics of seeking to treat autism. And Virginia, uh, too, is mother to an autistic young man. I'm going to talk mainly as a mother, although, as Sandy said, I am trying to research these issues and trying to finish a doctorate at the moment. One of the things I've done in the past is um, be involved in various attempts to encourage research into stakeholder priorities in autism research um, in various ways. And there are also charities in the UK who've done something similar research, Autism and Autistica. And I suppose one of the interesting ethical issues that's thrown up is that as far as I'm aware, and please tell me if I'm wrong, so far those pieces of research haven't identified stakeholders clamouring for the type of initiative that is EU aims. And so we have to think about who drives all these initiatives and, and what the power issues are and who are the right people to make decisions about the direction of research. The other thing that I think needs to be stated openly, the elephant in the room in a way, is the involvement of the pharmaceutical companies um, now, the cynics will say, well, of course, they want to find a treatment, don't they? Because then they can make lots of money. Um, and especially with Declan's blank piece of paper, you know, there's this sense of maybe anything will be better than nothing. I want to say my own view, I'm, I'm less cynical than that particular perspective. And I suppose that's because it would be curmudgeonly of me, because my son and I have both benefited enormously from pharmaceutical interventions um, for various, very different reasons, paid for, thankfully, by our wonderful National Health Service, because otherwise we would be completely bankrupt by now. So, yes, there is the profitability of the drug companies, and we cannot be naive and assume that everything that they do is altruistic. But equally, I would say, hands up to them, they've done a really good job in a lot of people's cases. My main big point really follows on, I guess, from what Declan and Richard have said, Clearly, treating autism is not like treating a standard illness. 
And it isn't a straightforward proposition to seek to treat autism wholesale as one unified thing. The heterogeneity of autism has been referred to, and I think that is a really, really big challenge for us if we're looking to find core symptoms, because I mean, Richard's talked about his son and how he differs from Sandy, and, and likewise my son. I mean, I struggle to see, almost to see the relevance of looking at core symptoms when somebody like Sandy is such an excellent chair, he's brilliant at what he does, etc., And there's my lovely Danny, who is an excellent human being and brilliant at what he does, but he has nothing in common with Sandy, as far as I can tell. And if he has common biology, I struggle with the relevance of that. Taking on board what Richard said, if we look at this thing that is autism, that is so diverse in its representation, we can do maybe two different things if we're curious. We can look into the biology to see how we can help, because clearly a lot of people with autism have very difficult lives for a whole array of reasons. Or we look at the lives, and as Richard said, we start from an issue of human well-being, and we say, what is impeding the well-being of these individuals in their lives? And I wonder if the answers will be in any way the same. If there are some inherent debilitations, do these apply across the spectrum? Or are they so individualised that developing blanket treatments, even for a subsection, starts to be quite challenging. Is it appropriate, or indeed possible, to seek core biological commonalities for such heterogeneity? Are the things that Sandy might need, or Richard's son might need, or my son might need, are they sufficiently similar to justify seeking out common biomarkers with a view to common pharmacological pharmacological intervention. I don't have the answers to these questions, but I think they're urgent, and I hope that there will be more ways of all of us discussing them. And I suppose my message to the scientists and clinicians who are a million times cleverer than me, you do need us, and that's autistic people and those who love autistic people, to help you identify what, if any, aspect of the lives of our people need treatment in the first place. Russell Strunach is the chair of Autistic UK, which is a campaigning organisation run by autistic people for autistic people. Russell, this project is very frightening. And really, I've just got a load of questions. And whether I'm speaking on behalf of Russell Stronic or whether I'm speaking on behalf of Autistic UK doesn't really matter because we've all just got loads of questions. This whole project seems very opaque. So treating autism... Hitherto, there's been no pharmacological treatment for autism. In fact, there's been a number of studies or reports or pieces of research indicating there is no medication for autism. Mm. And, and that's what's worrying about it. It's the idea of treatment for autism. Not treatment for problems that autistic people might face or the families of autistic children might face or treatment for a particular something or another associated with autistic children, adults or whatever but it's treatment of autism. Now that's a quantum leap. Trying to treat autism with drugs is something new. It's it's also treating autism with the stress on autism 
And this is what's really problematical, and this is what's really worrying. Even after 70 years after, after the, the concept of autism has been, been formulated, it's still extremely poorly defined. We, we don't really know what it is. In fact, the most useful thing I've heard anybody say on the subject recently was Michelle Dawson, a, can, a Canadian autistic woman, and I was listening to her about, um, about two years ago making a presentation about applied behavioral analysis, a very technical presentation, and right in the middle of it she just seemed to zone out and went quiet for five seconds or more then seemed to resurface and she just said this thing called autism we don't know what it is so I was just jumping up and down at the back of the room um, that's the most useful thing I've heard anybody say on the subject for years <laughs> we, we don't know what it is in spite of the library of books that have been written on the subject and the tens of thousands of research papers it's not defined. It's not defined by the diagnostic criteria. It's not. That's why so many books can be written. That's why there's an industry uh, to do with talking about autism. That's why people make a living on the conference circuits, endlessly talking about this thing called autism because nobody understands what it is, because nobody's taken the trouble to define it. To be autistically pedantic about it, it's a syndrome, stupid. That's how it's conceptualized, that's how it's diagnosed. It's literally a tick box exercise. It's a set of observable behaviors, a set of symptoms, which in the case of autism is a set of observable behaviors. If you, if you exhibit enough behaviors in front of the good doctor, then he will tick the boxes and you have the diagnosis. Now that's behavioral, right? And yet there's a medical stroke academic consensus that there is a difference in neurological functioning underlying that behavior. Again, being pedantic, autism is the behavior. It is the syndrome. It is the symptoms. That's how it's diagnosed. So what does treating autism mean? Does it mean treating the symptoms or does it mean treating the underlying neurology? Because if you're treating the symptoms, then that's just some sort of behavioral modification, pretending to be normal scenario. If you're treating the underlying neurology, then again, to be pedantic, this project is making some sort of misleading claim because it's not treating the autism, which is the behavior, it's treating the underlying neurology. My name's Aaron Linton-Smith, and um, I'm actually representing Autistic Nottingham. I just wanted to pick up on that point. Where I am in the spectrum, um, when you say autism is a disease, uh, I find that uh, phrase, disease, offensive from where I am because I'm living with autism and the benefits that it gives me in terms of lifelong benefits that I've gained, uh, I regard as, as a God-given talent and I've had an immensely valuable life as a result of being autistic. So from my point of view... It's, it's actually a privilege being on the autistic spectrum. My name's Hilary. I'm wearing three different hats. I'm parent of a 25-year-old young man with autism. I'm a medical practitioner. I've also got a sort of semi-professional interest in 
uh, social policy uh, and history of medicine. First, within the heterogeneity of autism, there are people like my son. My son, I thought, was going to be really brilliant when he was, a young, when he was in his first year of life. I wondered how his older brother would ever cope with him. He talked really early. He walked really early. Everything was going swimmingly. He certainly had shared attention. And then in the middle of his second year of life, things started to go wrong. And I feel like the autism, autism took over my child and took away a person I knew and left me with a young man who's now 25 who lived in a residential care home, which costs the taxpayer upwards of 200,000 a year. He's lovely in many ways. uh, He actually is quite social, but he gets incredibly distressed. Last Friday, I traveled on the train with him, and the subject of going to the fish and chip shop that evening came up, as I knew it would, because it's the first thing he wants to say when we meet up. And I broke it to him that we weren't going that night. We were going... Saturday lunchtime, and the distress, and I mean, only those who have a child like this could ever know what it's like, Um, and I've got to move on, so I will say the fact that he costs 200,000 a year plus to the taxpayer does bring another ethical issue in, because at the moment there's no alternative and that money has to be paid. It would be unethical in my view as a medical practitioner to avoid providing something that might actually enable some of that money to be used for other things. Um, Michael Fitzpatrick, I have a 22-year-old son with autism, and I'm also a medical practitioner. I think one issue that's been rather neglected is the question of capacity. I don't think anybody has any inclination to impose treatments for autism on people who have the capacity to refuse them. That's no problem. The issue is... <laughs> Only those who don't. Well, the issue, the issue is... You know, my son has no capacity to make a judgment. He experiences epileptic fits. He experiences uh, episodes of self-injury. If you try and stop him injuring himself, he will attack other people. Now, those are problems which it seems to me, you know, somebody said, is there nobody clamouring for EU aims? I'm clamouring for effective treatments for those things which would have a dramatic effect on the quality of his life. And I think it's, it seems to me it's people much too casually dismiss this very substantial population of people in autism are very severely affected by these sort of issues. Virginia, well, you made the point that, you know, there isn't really a constituent, necessarily a constituency clamouring, and the point was made quite forcefully that in, from one perspective, perhaps there is. Um, and I absolutely relate to what you're saying. Um, I've been on the receiving end and witnessed similar behaviours in my son. And I think it links in with Russell's point, though. I am clamouring for certain things that will help him not self-injure and then not be aggressive. But they're not, in terms of the diagnostic statistical manual, they are not the core symptoms of autism. They might be a byproduct. And I think if there was a commitment to looking at the issues that cause problems for autistic people and all the people who love them and, and are with them, that would be to treat some things, yes, that maybe desperately need treating. But it's, it is actually conceptually different from treating autism, given current definitions of autism. Hi, uh, my name's Seth. Going back to something that Richard said, and who is the treatment for? And I wonder if 
we're looking at the wrong people for giving the treatment too. Shouldn't we not be thinking about the rest of society and trying to get them to understand us? Right. Because from my point of view, that would be the best cure for autism. I do take very seriously your point about why we don't treat the neurotypical. Because in my own experience as a parent, I've very, very rarely had problems with my son's behaviour. But I have oftentimes had problems with reactions to it from other people. My name's Rachel. Um, I'm on the autism spectrum too. And I'm probably quite unique in my perspective in that I'm quite high-functioning. And I also have quite a lot of difficulties with everyday life. And I'd quite like some help with it. And it's not a separate mental health, health disorder. It's not... A, a separate learning difficulty. It's actually the bits of the of autism, maybe not that mentioned in the DSM. Um, and I wanted to come back to the question that was asked at the beginning about is there anything that's across the spectrum that's inherently debilitating? And I think often it is ends up being the social aspect that is most discussed. And I don't find that inherently debilitating. It's difficult for sure, but it is not inherently debilitating. What I think is inherently debilitating is difficulties with initiating, switching tasks, and that actually that affects all that areas of my life. That affects my study, that affects if I want to work, that affects lots of things. And I think that that's probably true for a lot of people, and it's just not talked about. Hi, uh, I'm a mom of uh, a nine-year-old who was diagnosed last year with autism. Uh, it's high-functioning autism, and he's a lovely child. He's doing very well with his uh, maths and uh, history, etc. The problems he faces as of, you know, uh, being a bit clumsy and, and uh, maybe, you know, slow in his processing speed. So though he reads at the level of a, fa- of a 15-year-old, he can't really uh, put together the thoughts in a coherent way in terms of, an, uh, of essay writing, and that's part of the normal educational system. Uh, my worry for him is that though he's high-functioning, I, I feel that there's no support at all with the NHS for him to achieve his potential. Other than the diagnosis, we were, you know, everybody washes their hands off and then they say, okay, now you deal with it. I'm very close to someone who has autism and their mother, um, and I really, I know that that little boy's mother would absolutely love to see what her son could do if he was actually sort of more physically able, I suppose, to, maybe if that's, yeah. And I just think, I really hope no one would think she was evil because she would be medicating him because I think she would so love to see him do certain things. And the, uh, I'd like to bring it back a bit uh, about EU aims, which I saw the end of this discussion. I'm a bit surprised. I mean, so this debate happened two years, so halfway through the project, and we were told at the beginning, so it's not so much to influence this project, but to influence the next ones. How come we were not involved at all at the beginning of this project, or be, not even at the beginning of this project, but before this project existed? And there's been some comments on what the autistic community might want to be researched in. And so that doesn't seem to have been taken into account at all. My name's Sally Higginbottom. I'm a GP, but I'm here in a personal capacity as the mother of an autistic boy. The thing that, one thing that hasn't been mentioned is, is the, the potential downside for identifying genes, which will be followed rapidly by identifying prenatal testing. And if Downs is anything to go by, terminations with very rapidly. Um, I'm not saying that's not a reason to look for genes, but it, it's something we should be upfront about particularly because obviously terminating an autistic affected pregnancy is something that's going to affect the autistic person involved but Mm. it's also potentially going to affect the gene pool for all of us because my husband is a mathematician 
the, the risk for autism in children of mathematicians, engineers, accountants, finance people is much, much higher. It, it seems that some of these genes prove really useful for people who like to focus on detail, who do lots of useful things. Um, so I don't think we need to lose those genes as a population as well as in individuals. Okay. I'd like to pass the microphone down to the gentleman here, but while it's moving, I just want to, I want to make a quick point in response to that, um, since I work in genetics and assisted conception. I mean, the difference between prenatal selection for something like Down syndrome, which is, you know, it's chromosomal, it's as significant as can be, and something as complex and poorly understood as the genetics of autism is quite vast. Um, such attempts to do prenatal, supposedly prenatal um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for autism as, have, as exist as, uh, in Australia, they're just sex selection. They're using sex as a proxy for autism, and they're, they're understanding population statistics very, very poorly um, when they do so. Um, I, I would not... That's a quite a distant prospect you're talking about. It's not an invalid point, but I just thought I'd add that perspective. My name is Leo Capella, and technically I'm an expert advisor for Ambitious About Autism, but I'm in, here in my own personal capacity as a professional and campaigner on the autistic spectrum. I don't, having listened to some of the earlier comments, let me make it crystal clear. If people are on the spectrum are suffering... I do not want to deny them a path out. But I have to say this. As a citizen on the spectrum, I don't want my rights to be denied under any system that comes with any treatment, be it medical or social. Because we're not just talking about science, we're talking about laws. Autism links quite closely in some people's minds with a sense of who they are that you can be a diabetic person and say, I am me and I have diabetes. But there will be many people in the autism rights movement who see, they don't say I'm a person with autism, they say I'm an autistic person. My autism is me. If you take away my autism, you take away me, which is what Anya Ustaveski, um, an autistic advocate, said. I'm quoting her. And in that sense, autism is very different from other areas of medicine. You, it's not just a little bit of someone that you can treat and make better. It is their whole, people will say, it is my whole entity, it is me. So there are additional ethical issues around autism that don't apply in all areas of medicine. And I don't just think it's the high-functioning, able people who have the ability to talk about their own identity. I would say it's true of my son. I know the difference between an ill autistic person and a well autistic person. And thank God he's well at the moment and he's autistic. And I think if we addressed his autism, we would be addressing who he is. And, and that's a profoundly ethical challenge, I think.